0: Hi, you guys. Welcome to the Untamed and Unashamed podcast. This is a place where together we can navigate through life's ups and downs with all of the vulnerability, compassion, and openness that we can muster. Along with the help of guests from all walks of life, we'll discover new truths while doing some unlearning, and we'll gain valuable tools for becoming who we already are while also uncovering our divine gifts. I'm Jade Bryce and I'm so grateful that you're here. I wanted to ask you guys really quick to leave a review if you haven't already. It'll only take a second and it would mean so much to me on this venture of mine. If everyone that listened to this episode left a review, it would make a huge difference. So please, if you could take a moment, you don't even have to stop listening. You can just go and either hit the five stars or write something out, whatever you wanna do, but it'll only take you a second and it'll mean so much. All right. Our guest today is an author, researcher, and pleasure activist who's passionate about survivor advocacy. She's the founder of Soma Body Trauma-Informed Pleasure Work and was a trauma-informed embodiment coach for 14 years, working with thousands of students and clients in that time. She initially began studying the connections between fawning and sex in 2016 to better understand her own experiences and went on to work almost exclusively with female survivors and those recovering from unhealed relationships to help them address fawning during intimacy and reclaim their relationships to pleasure. Fawn... When No Looks Like Yes, is the first book to ever be written about fawning in the context of sex and consent. Part memoir, part expose, part self-study guide, Fawn is a rousing call to celebrate our authentic sexuality and to invite more intention into our bedrooms and more pleasure into our lives. Please help me welcome Nisha Heron Fair to Untamed and Unashamed hi hi thank you so much for having me i'm excited for this conversation yeah me too i feel your book is so needed and i know it's it's the first one on the topic so i'm so excited to amplify that voice and i'd love to i have so many questions about uh your book and your work but maybe we can start off with um how you even started working in this area
1: um well I'm a trauma survivor. Um I grew up in a very unstable home and had a lot of developmental trauma. A lot of sexual trauma as a child which eventually became a lot of sexual trauma as an adult and um everything that I've done and tried to put forward is um really what I felt I needed and didn't have at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really been a discovery process of identifying where are the gaps in supporting survivors and also in supporting people in, you know, experiencing mental health, um, psycho-emotional health disruptions. Um, And so that's really where I arrived in terms of not just doing this book or work, but writing the book. Um, You know, when we think about fawning, it is a hierarchical stress response. Mm -hmm. It happens because someone, Has more power than the other. It's a submission response. And we don't just see this in bed and in our intimate relationships. We see this in the medical space. We see this in treatment um, of all forms. And when we aren't aware of our, the inherent perceived power that maybe might have over another person we're creating an environment where fawning uh can happen for either ourselves or someone else so mm-hmm. that's really kind of the my love letter to the world through this book is to um begin to dismantle those hidden hierarchies so that we can live more authentically as the people we came here to be yeah i um i grew up with all the same traumas and
0: uh fawned in every and well yeah, I want to get into what exactly fawning is, but um I fawned in every single relationship up until my current one. And uh, my current one is the only one that I've experienced after healing my sexual trauma or um really doing healing work at all. Um, but what I've noticed is that because um I was in the fawning state, I was calling in certain partners that preyed upon that. Mm-hmm. And then the thing is, is, um, then I started to heal and I called in this different type of partner and I don't fawn in the relationship. However, because I feel like for, for so long, I felt like a recovering fawner or whatever you would call it. It was a very, I had this like, um, energy in the relationship of like, um like the pendulum swung the other way and it was very much like you're not going to control me you're not going to you know mm-hmm. and um i'm just now really starting to find the balance um because i was so deep in the fawn and in the trauma bonds and in the res- the trauma responses and um you know calling in the narcissists that would prey on that um that now even though i'm in a safer relationship it feels like i'm still at times just really, really making sure I'm not fawning, you know, so I'd love to hear about the balance. But first, maybe we could go into what is fawning and why it's a problem in
1: relationships. Where to start? So I think the first, there's a lot of language around fawn and fawn responses. Um, First off, the response wasn't identified until 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't the term fond didn't come into our lexicon until 2013. So this is really new territory for us Mm -hmm. as humans, as practitioners, as researchers. Um, And I think that the the one thing that I want people to, to take away from this conversation or any researcher experiences they have in trying to recover from bonding experiences is that it's not a choice. Mm. this is a body level tissue nervous system organ response it's more prominent more um uh predisposed for people in female bodies but it's then reinforced by all our social conditioning that teaches Mm -hmm. women to be quiet and submissive and you know not rock the boat or make other people uncomfortable right so and this is something I try to do with the book is really tease out all those biopsychosocial aspects. Mm-hmm. So you can see things a little bit more clearly. Um, Fawn is a submission response. And it's triggered anytime we have been given either the information directly or by the circumstances in our environment that our authentic self isn't safe or acceptable, that mm-hmm. our safety, either emotional, physical, or spiritual safety is in some way threatened or damaged. Mm-hmm. The thing about stress responses is that anytime we get the message that we're not safe, that something about us is not okay or acceptable, we're going to use stress responses in order to try and establish safety. Yeah. Where this is tricky in our attachment experiences, both with parents and also, you know, intimate relationships is that we start to live in these stress responses and this fond persona mm-hmm. starts to become our, our daily, um, identity, mm-hmm. right? So you have the kind of the people pleaser or the fawner as these, um, I call it a cast and the process of recovering is the breaking of the cast to break mm-hmm. through and, you know, emerge as the people we came here to be, um, mm-hmm. I would love to read a little passage from the book just to kind of flesh things out and help with some concrete Mm -hmm. examples Mm -hmm. um, because it can become a little bit more relevant. So fight flight is a body level nervous system response that creates observable behaviors and reactions we can easily identify in ourselves and others. Things like running away, lashing out or panicking. And fawn is no different. The body-level, nervous system response of fawning creates observable behaviors of people-pleasing, self-abandonment, lapsed boundaries, and agreeing to things to avoid conflict or to gain affection. These behaviors aren't a conscious choice. They're just evidence of fawn and action. And like any of our stress responses, there's a spectrum. So you can be a little bit fawny or a lot. Fawning... Present as performing, faking orgasm, disguising parts of your sexuality, or going along with things to keep the peace, or hoping someone will like you more. It may feel panicked, but can also feel submissive and tuned out or apathetic, which is very common if a partner regularly uses coercive or manipulative tactics to um, get you to have sex with them. Mm-hmm. Some other examples in include having sex before you're ready. Going with the flow to avoid seeming high maintenance, changing your tastes, opinions, or turn ons to be more agreeable, or withholding feelings to avoid seeming needy. Empathy is fawning. Giving a shady guy a fake number is fawning. Agreeing to an act you don't want to do to save the relationship is fawning. And the world famous get out of my apartment hand job is fawning. It's something we do to get ourselves out of hot water when fight or flight isn't an option or when there's evidence that a no from someone else won't be observed or will cause backlash. So quite simply, we fawn in order to save ourselves from what might happen if we don't. And this means that just because you cuddled afterwards or engaged in some pillow talk doesn't mean you weren't violated. Mm. Yeah,
0: that last line is really important.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know, I'd always heard of fight, flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. As the stress responses, it wasn't until, I know you said it was 2000 or 2013 that like the term was being used, but it wasn't until probably two years ago that I even started hearing, hearing the word fawn. Um, And so that, yeah. And once that came into my awareness, that's when I realized like, oh, I, I used to be the fawner. And I think now, um, you know, and the thing, the reason why I think I developed that stress response is because I grew up in a very hierarchical religious Mm -hmm. background. And so it was very submissive. And in fact, if you weren't submitting to your authority or Bible study leader or pastor, you were missing the mark and, um, resisting the authority of God that uh, of who God placed in your life. And we even had required readings of books about how, um, you must submit to authority in the church. And so of course, like I had this programming of fawning and, um, you know, I can think of this year when, when my partner, um, all of a sudden didn't feel okay with my altar in the home or my, um, Ganesh or my Lakshmi, whatever for me, because I had fawned so much in the, past when people tried to dictate my spirituality or my faith or my access to God, I went hardcore into boundaries. Like it's like you take this or you leave it. And there was no, I I noticed like it's a difference with my friends where I feel safe if they say something that um, I feel maybe a bit shaming or maybe a bit, um, they misunderstood, like there's a misunderstanding, there's no fawning and there's no fight or fleas freeze i instantly say you know when you said that i felt this
2: Mm -hmm.
0: there's the big thing is that both of our hearts stay open and i i wasn't finding that in my relationship i was going straight to the opposite of fawning and so i'm i'm really trying to find um because i know it's so much about safety i'm really trying to find the safety within myself and within the relationship to where i can have that same reaction here Mm -hmm. um because I think that me creating that type of um, response in me can some sometimes create the Fawn response in him, you know? So,
1: yeah, I don't know if you have anything to say on that. I do. So I think, you know, the process of unlearning Fawn really asks us to um, be gentle with ourselves and others and to practice non-judgment. Mm-hmm. And that's so hard in our intimate relationships. Um, the only way to heal is to experience that swinging to the other end of the spectrum, that like pendulum swing, because that's the only way we eventually find balance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, And there will be that moving back to, Oh my gosh, I did, you know, I was fawning in that moment. Right. And um, I think part of, you know, I like to say that we never want to stop getting triggered. We just want to mm-hmm. surround ourselves with people who, can love us and accept us in our triggers. And I really think that's the key, just knowing that having that separation and not taking things personally, Mm -hmm. I think it's a big, um, a big piece. And it really comes from, you know, like you're in this place now where you have this relationship where you can both be aware of each other's histories and be loving towards each other's histories. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very, very challenging to heal our fawning patterns if we don't have that safety. Because if we don't have safety, we're going to fawn
2: mm-hmm.
1: without question. Um, so always knowing that we have that foundation to to build on
2: yeah. um,
1: is just so integral to that process. Yeah. I'm so glad. It's so I love hearing stories of people who found nourishing relationships that they can grow in after you know trauma and abuse it's um it's everything
2: yeah
0: yeah I'm curious too um if when people are in a fawn response I guess it might happen in all stress responses but I'm curious if it makes it harder to see red flags for while they're happening
1: Mm, oh my gosh! Like this is my favorite topic. oh Okay. <laughs> so red flags are like we've kind of been fed this story that they're this kind of mysterious thing, and I describe them as the the Bermuda Triangle of dating and relationships. Mm. Um, and they're not mysterious. The reason we struggle to see red flags there's a bio, a psycho, and a social, um complex. And part of it is because if you were raised in a home or in an environment, in a community where there was a lot of red flag behavior, where you were expected to submit and expected to be compliant, expected to obey and expected to go along with people being out of integrity, with people being violent, either with their voices, their bodies, um, their energy um expected to just accept that these horrible ways of treating one another were the norm then when you encounter that in in your partners
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're dating we don't see them right because it's just that's our normal yeah the biological piece is that when a fawn response is triggered and this is true for any hypoarousal responses which fawn falls in that category of hypoarousal so reduced nervous system arousal um it inhibits our awareness
2: mm-hmm.
1: our capacity for awareness and it shuts off connection to a our language center but be the part of our brains responsible for critical thinking and decision making
2: mm-hmm.
1: so even if i could see the red flag the triggering of that fawn response is going to be make me incapable of doing anything about it, Mm -hmm. or it will maybe not make me incapable, but it will make it much, much more difficult. And then we have the social piece because part of this is just, you know, you're kind of with all these conversations around fawning. I like to kind of always bring in the fact that yes, there is a certain element of needing to get along with one another in a very complex and, you know, ever-changing world especially after the last couple of years but when people are going along with these social agreements where we're expected to keep the peace and go along with whatever um, unhealthy behavior and ideologies particularly within a patriarchal framework Mm -hmm. um, and just accept the status quo as it is, we'll make excuses for things or, you know, again, go along with these red flags. And so it's really, you know, and I have this process listed in the book of how we can really get to the root of all of the biopsychosocial components Mm -hmm. and the somatic, how that all is showing up in the somatic for us so that once you weed out all of those stories and do the body work, so that it's those stories aren't true anymore, mm. red flags are like so obvious. Mm. It was almost overnight as soon as I, you know, began to figure this out. It was like being handed the key to the universe. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. after struggling so so much in dating yeah. And relationships. So. Yeah, I feel the same way. Mm.
0: Um, so I'd love to talk about. I want to shift into um, sexuality a bit, so um, maybe first we could talk about what authentic sexuality is and why it's so
2: important.
1: Mm -hmm. So my definition for sexual or authentic sexuality is uh, that there is no definition. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's a process and it is deeply personal. It changes with us every day through our cycles, through our times of life, through years. Um, through different relationships. And so if I could give a definition for authentic sexuality, it's that it is not a thing or a destination. It's a commitment to process.
2: Hmm.
1: It's a commitment to continually having self-compassion for ourselves as sexual beings and um, really bringing that into the bedroom because I feel deeply that that's been what's missing You know, and when I talk about people being more compassionate to their lovers, um, especially in the, you know, casual sex space, um, Mm -hmm. it's uh, I get a lot of like squirmy faces and people get very uncomfortable when we think about having compassion, you know, for people in bed, because I feel like for a lot of people who haven't mm, maybe stepped into conscious or sacred sexuality, sex and the bedroom is a place where all of the, undiscovered repressed parts of self kind of come out to play and all the rules and agreements that we have with each other outside of the bedroom mm-hmm. go out the window. It's like listening. <laughs> you know? um, so uh, yeah, the, it's a commitment to process, I think more than ever. And I think part of authentic sexuality I suggest in the book is this philosophy that I created called choiceful rebellion, choiceful rebellion. Yes. So you cannot have authentic sexuality without choiceful rebellion because being our authentic selves means uh, staying rooted to the truth of who we are. And I can't be rooted to the truth of who I am. If I'm allowing outside influences and sources, social, socio-sexual scripts societal conventions to impact who I am and how I show up in the bedroom with my Mm -hmm. partner, right so choiceful rebellion can be as simple as choosing to grow out your um your pubic hair if you're used Mm. to you know shaving right Mm -hmm. it can be something like quitting porn if that's something that you realize is shaping who and how you are trying to show up sexually. So mm-hmm. it's really an invitation to get really curious about like, how is my sexuality being formed by everyone other than me and my body and my soul? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that was, I think I came to this because I had this realization that everyone else around me, whether it was my family, my, you know, I grew up in the Catholic um, church um, and school, all of it were imposing what my sexuality was supposed to be on me other than me. At no time did anyone ever say, hey, you're a sexual being. Guess what? You get to be in charge of how you self-determine as a sexual mm-hmm. being. you want that to look like? Mm-hmm. What kind of experiences do you want to have? Right? So it was kind of a reparenting mm-hmm. process for me because I didn't get any of any, any sex ed or, or pleasure ed growing up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my little, my little bit on authentic sexuality.
0: Yeah. Uh, man, I'm so glad that this is kind of becoming the norm to hear about Mm. because I mean, as a mother, that's what I want so deeply for my daughter and for my son, you know, is those types of questions and, and and seeing themselves as sexual beings not someone that um not two people who have to ignore or repress or deny that part of themselves um because it's shameful mm-hmm. you know and and so just don't talk about it and then and then what happens when you don't talk about it trauma you know and and fawning yeah. <laughs> so And you had a quote in your book that said, um, it's really hard to be your authentic self in bed if you don't feel safe and supported to be your authentic self in life. So um, I think that really resonates for me because I haven't really had partnerships where I've been, where I felt like unleashed and like I could fully um, have my sexual expression be not just seen but also celebrated Mm -hmm. but I think it's because um and I haven't felt um like safe enough to do that because I haven't felt um that in that type of acceptance and celebration for just who I am as a person you know so if Yeah, I think that's like what the craving really is—is like the sense of safety and belonging for who you are. Mm -hmm. And once you have that, then of course, then you can feel it in the bedroom. But like, how can you feel it in the bedroom if you don't have it for, you know, who you are as a person? So it makes perfect sense. But I don't know if there's anything you want to add to
1: that. Um, you know, I think maybe just that authenticity has been a bit of a buzzword for the last five or seven years, especially on social media. And I think it's really easy to fall into this trap of like, I need to be more authentic and I need to like do things that are more authentic and, and try things that are more authentic. And authenticity becomes kind of an action item instead of the unavoidable effect of simply feeling safe and comfortable to be exactly who you are as you are. So a lot of, I mean, Brene Brown talks a lot about authenticity being a practice. And I, I don't agree. Largely because in order for it to be a practice, you must have that foundation of safety and security that quite frankly, the vast majority of people on this planet just aren't born with. Mm. We're born into safe communities. We're born into homes that lovingly embrace who we are and allow us to explore ourselves and our purpose, our journey, right? We're imposed through education, through, you know, really oppressive ideologies, through racism and homophobia, right? So um, I think that authenticity must come. It is, it is, like I said, the unavoidable side effect of feeling safe and secure. Um, And like you said, once you have that safety and security in your walking life, mm-hmm. um, it's so much easier to find in your loving life. In the yeah.
0: And what, I mean, I can't think of a more beautiful gift to give and receive mm-hmm. as like the full acceptance and safety of another, so much so that they get to experience that type of sexual connection where they are just their full, authentic sexual selves. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I think that most people don't ever experience that in their partnerships or in their life. And I think that now, though, they're actually, it's like um, being talked about to where we're realizing that it's an option, you know, so it's really beautiful. Um, Another thing that you you mentioned in your book is that we don't have a sexual repression problem. We have a death aversion problem. And I'd love to talk about that because it wasn't something I fully grasped by reading it. So I'd love to.
1: Should I, should I read the passage so that folks can? Sure. If you know, um, if you can easily access it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's one of my favorites and oh, it's in the chapter, um, which is I've kind of, um, just myself coined it. It's like the orgasm of the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, a of, like, there's a lot of deep stuff and I try to, I really do my best to, approach a potentially difficult subject with levity mm-hmm. um but i really you know towards the end we get to the the real satisfying juicy yeah uh, juicy stuff so um can you repeat the quote that you were we
0: don't have problem? yeah we don't have a sexual repression problem we have a death aversion really? problem
1: um We don't have a sexual repression problem. We have a death aversion problem. We suffer from a gross and pathological incompetence to recognize the fleeting and fragile consequence of our existence and the existence of others. So here's a question. How would you have sex if you knew that you would die the second it was over? Wow. Think about it really. If a single act of lovemaking was the very last thing you did on this earth in this life, what would it look like? How long would it last? How would you experience your partner's body as theirs was the last you'd ever touch? And how would you want yours to be experienced in return? What would you do to etch this final and fatal memory of pleasure into your bones? The feeling of another's hands on your body, the smell of skin in every inhale, the taste of their lips on yours. What emotion would you want to be feeling as your essence left your body and returned to the ether forever? So this is my invitation to bring more celebration of death into life. I think that mm-hmm. it is only in the confront, confrontation of mortality that we learn how to live. That we learn how to um, step out of the sleepy ennui of our day to day life and actually live purposefully. Um, so that's a invitation that I've I've um, offered to a number of folks. I uh, there was another podcaster that I shared that with, and he said you've changed my life going forward there will be the time before Nisha (laughs) offered that invitation and the time after he said that you know he's having the best sex of his life just taking that moment before lovemaking to connect with like what if this is the last thing I ever do on this planet Mm. right and so that's why I really feel that if we if we could really connect with our with death. I mean, death is, I think, probably more repressed than sex. We really don't want to look at it. Mm-hmm. But death is in sex because mm-hmm. it's so vital, it's so alive. It is the reminder of our aliveness and the fact that we die. Right. Mm-hmm. We experience specifically in in you know the throes of orgasm, a uh, liminal quality of only that kind of ex- expansive type of pleasure can can bring so um yeah i really feel that if we connected more with the fact that everything on this life specifically ours the time that we're here is impermanent um we would sorry my dog is drinking in the background. I don't <laughs> um uh we would have everything yeah yeah, like we just, we wouldn't have the same kind of challenges in relationships, in politics, in society, you know, if we was like, we're all going to die tomorrow, we would all be our best selves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I'm sure some people would just go off on a, on a rampage, but yeah.
0: yeah, I think of it really um, so much also in my parenting, like what would be more oh, important goodness. than connection yeah. with my children,
2: you know? Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> It's no secret that shame-free sex and pleasure are powerful avenues to deeper connections and an overall sense of well-being. And accessible, expertly designed toys can play a big part in getting you there and making you feel more alive. Dame is leading a sexual wellness revolution as a women-powered resource for game-changing pleasure products and supportive content. Started by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, Dame develops her products based on research and feedback from people like you. They're making better sexual experiences and more pleasure available to all. Dame's easy-to-use toys and accessories are made with body-safe, doctor-approved materials and smart design principles. And they've earned glowing praise from the New York Times, the Today Show, and many more Including me. Whether you're looking to shake things up with your partner or upgrade your self-care routine, they've got something for every nightstand. Even better, Dame offers three-year warranties and hassle-free returns within 60 days, so your satisfaction is literally guaranteed. And I will guarantee you satisfaction because I use their products myself. They're amazing. My favorite one is their suction toy. I call it the clip sucker, but it's Uh, spelt A-E-R. It's called air. It's a powerful arousal tool for fans of oral stimulation. It creates thrilling pulses of air and a soft seal around your clitoris. So you can go all the way right away. Guys, I have like eight to 10 orgasms almost every time I use it. I use it during sex and in my own pleasure practice you will not be disappointed. They're also sending me a bunch of their other products, so I'll keep you updated. But as of right now, this one's my favorite and I highly recommend it. Go to dameproducts.com and use code Jade today for 15% off your order with Dame. Now on with the show. So That was so good. Thank you. Mm. Um, One of my favorite moments, I think, from from all recordings was was that reading. So... um, you talk about the difference between experiencing pleasure and doing pleasure work. So I'd love to go into that because, um, I can, I know you're a pleasure activist. I consider myself the same and so much of my work is helping women reconnect to their pleasure. Um, so I, yeah, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, the difference between experiencing pleasure and doing pleasure
1: work. Totally. So, um, I think it really comes down to, for me in terms of, I think what what drove or or guided um, the way I work with pleasure is um, window of tolerance.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is the um, concept that we all have a window of tolerance for things like stress, mm-hmm. uh, noise, but we also have hi baby. We also have a window of tolerance for love, for nourishing food. For pleasure and comfort and safety. And so, if I'm experiencing too much loving intimacy in my relationship, I might either lash out or um, shut down. Yeah. Because my, this isn't like a psycho emotional thing. It's like my nervous system doesn't have the resources, the training, the wiring to be able to process that information. Yeah. So, pleasure is something that you know you can go and have an orgasm you can make a delicious meal um, pleasure work as far as i've you know been working with the clients and teaching is really about the titration of pleasure mm-hmm. so that we out of this place where the embodied belief of i don't deserve goodness i don't deserve a healthy relationship i don't deserve nourishing love becomes a lie because I'm feeding myself, my body, my nervous system, small, safe amounts of nourishing food, of loving contact with other human beings, right? So this is why most of my work when I was, uh, I'm not coaching anymore, but when I was coaching, initially we would just work on non-sexual pleasure to get, and part of that is because we're educating body mm-hmm. in being able to hold pleasure, but it's also so so regulating for the nervous system so if my nervous system feels safe i can conquer the world yeah i can climb all the mountains crush all the goals as long as my nervous system feels safe and okay in the world if Mm -hmm. not then i'm gonna shut down i'm gonna lash out i'm gonna make decisions that aren't in integrity Mm -hmm. so that's really the distinction that Mm -hmm. i make for um turning pleasure into just I mean and that's not taking anything away from the experiential qualities of pleasure, but it helps particularly people who struggle with um being able to live a more vibrant life yeah. to make more space that you know you can invite in moments every hour, or half an hour, and it doesn't have to feel like a chore. it can start to just feel like the norm,
2: yeah hmm. Mm.
1: Yeah. So that, so does that explain if there's anything else for want me to clarify? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And,
0: and I know that a lot of your pleasure work you do with clients is non-sexual and I think it's so mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, some of the training that I've done has been like the pendulation between, um, really tapping into my grief or mm-hmm. my anger, um, whatever that is and like really feeling it. And then like, going into pleasure in the body, specifically work, with working with um, orgasm even, um, just to kind of provide that narrow network of, first of all, that like my grief and my sorrow doesn't take my pleasure away. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't feel that for me, but also that like I have the choice of going from one to the other. I don't have to stay yeah. in the yeah. sadness. And um, I, I'm curious, um, th- this I'm, I think that this um, applies, but I'll say it and if it doesn't, then then we don't have to go there. but um, I went to a, a tantric retreat a couple weeks ago, and we worked with a lot, we did a lot of breath work, uh, like hours and hours a day, and we did a lot of dat practices mm-hmm. and worked with a lot of energy. And during that week, I had probably 70 to 80 orgasms um, without a man, just me, Mm -hmm. but also more than half of those, I wasn't touching my body. Um, It was just working with my energy and my breath. And um, I had posted about that because I know that there's so many women who struggle with orgasm, but feel that either they're broken or it's their partner's responsibility and not something that they unlock in themselves mm-hmm. of course like we have to find someone who can meet us there but like it's really it's up to us to unlock it because yeah. a lot of us don't feel worthy like you said it's stored in our nervous system that we don't we're not deserving of it or um you know there's so many different things there that can create this story um around pleasure but i had posted about it because um more so i wanted women to realize that like that power is within us like we, mm-hmm. we have access to that and um i know like there was one woman who commented about how she she didn't she didn't really appreciate or like that i was sexualizing orgasms mm-hmm. um, and she'd been studying tantra for 20 years now and that like it was very um, the opposite of Tantra that she'd studied. Um, whereas for me, it was very much the Tantra that I've studied. And I know there's so many different forms, but, um, it had really struck a chord with her and it, it really made me want to like check myself on, um, yeah, on like my ideas around pleasure. My, I feel like my work though, that I feel here in service of is women's sexuality Mm -hmm. and women being able to experience pleasure in all areas of life, but mainly like in their sexuality and like being able to orgasm as a form of connecting to themselves and opening up those channels. Mm -hmm. And so I think that maybe our work is just different, me and that woman, woman, and like neither is wrong, but there was, there was this feeling in me of like, Oh shit. Is it, it like, am I confused am I have I not reached this state that she's talking about you know and um there was this other one last thing that I'll add is um I had done a mushroom ceremony after coming back from that trip and received this message and you know the medicine speaks to us in ways that we can understand this doesn't have to be an absolute truth for everybody but there is this like if i'm remembering it correctly it was some sort of message around like because it, my, the ceremony was much around my parenting and around my grief mm-hmm. the ability to sit with grief especially my children's in the middle of their tantrums right mm-hmm. there was this message around um once i can sit with grief once i can sit with my children's grief and with my own um that life like life basically becomes a bu- like so orgasmic because it's on the other side of the grief, right? But there was this message of like, it's all just a bunch of orgasms. And it was like this like really like silly, like, and mushrooms tend to be very playful with me. So this was this very like playful message of like, it's all just a bunch of orgasms. And um, I kind of like had offered that to that person. And she was like, that's not humanly sustainable. And so there was all these feelings of like, Feeling like my experience was invalidated or discredited, Mm -hmm. and I—I'm trying to find the balance of like hearing someone else's truth without having to. And I'm on the spectrum, so it's a bit hard for me to not have that black and white thinking. But I'm striving. You know, I accept my brain for where it's at. I know it's doing its best. But it's—I'm trying to work with hearing someone else's truth without having to make my experience wrong. But I also (laughs) want to find the balance of hearing someone else's truth and like. Saying, oh, okay. Well, I can feel differently. I can grow and and uh, expand, you know. But I'm I'm finding the balance of that expansion and also being able to just say, like, oh, like, well, this is my truth. It is just just a bunch of orgasms, and like, mm-hmm. uh, this, this is the work I'm here to do. Your work is different, but yeah, I, I was just curious if you had any any thoughts around um orgasms being sexualized as that woman said Mm -hmm. um yeah because i i'm that's just something i've been sitting with all week because i want to make sure that i'm um open to my mind changing you
1: know it opens up a really interesting conversation because i mean i think Orgasms can be medicinal. we can use them to help regulate our nervous systems and just simply to self soothe
2: mm-hmm.
1: um just like walking can have different purposes, <laughs> yeah, right Like you can walk in the forest, you can walk to get errands, you can walk your dog. It's all walking, but you're getting different things from it. You can walk with a partner, right um I think. I think in all spheres, what we as a culture suffer from is um, A, the need for our way to be the way, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And B, this kind of like, and I really feel that the pandemic has done this to us. We've been sitting behind screens, arguing on social media and um, the polarization that's happened has just created so much division. Mm -hmm. And it tends to be people's like first you know gut reaction to just be like oh that's not me it's this way or right instead of being like hey that's interesting tell me more yeah <laughs> right um there are a few things i wanted to touch on in terms of what you were saying i mean i don't i think that we all have a process mm-hmm. a journey and there's a time for everything and um i think wherever we are has value to someone who's listening mm-hmm. um, where I can pick out. I think some of what she may be touching on and the whole idea of the humanly possible piece.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we're actually, we might dip into some territory that you said you might want to touch on when we were doing the intro. Um, orgasm is a neuroendocrine event. It requires a huge amount of um, hormones or transmitters, minerals, human physical body resources in order to produce this neuroendocrine event. Mm -hmm. So if I am a lifelong trauma survivor, right? Mm -hmm. And I regularly deal with dysregulation, my nervous system is already really uh, taxed.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Maybe there's some HPA access um, dysregulation there having taking on a practice of daily orgasms or you know morning and night orgasms whether it's with a partner or not can be um draining mm. right and so the beautiful medicinal qualities of orgasm that many people are able to um maintain and sustain
2: mm-hmm
1: aren't always going to be available for everybody Mm -hmm. and part of that again is the um, window of tolerance piece Mm -hmm. we talked about part of it is you know they just don't have the resources because of whatever else they're you know navigating in their lives yeah um and so i think that that's where i focus on the non-sexual pleasure work first to Mm -hmm. literally build up those resources to widen the window of tolerance so that i know it's not that i never do sexual pleasure work with my clients it's just that we always start with the non-sexual first so we build up that foundation and then they're raring to go yeah into the more sexual explorations and and uh orgasm studies and all that yeah sorry well that's just um
0: it's so important in those first few sessions especially Um, to build safety, because it's not just like, the idea that they're safe with you, it's that the nervous system feels safe to feel pleasure. Otherwise, Mm
2: -hmm. it's like
0: a re-traumatization of like forcing something onto it. So I'd love to go into that. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, you've you've mentioned on your Instagram that there's like, you know, the possibility of re-traumatization by a sacred sex course. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've gone to plenty of like tantric events where it's you know you buy a ticket it's a one night thing we're all doing JDEG practices together and some women are orgasming some are crying some are laughing like everyone's having a different response um and i can see how for some that might be traumatizing because uh, it wasn't for me because i've already done a certain amount of work to build up that safety but i can see how for some It would be. And then I really appreciated this tantric um, retreat that I went to. I'm in a 15 month course and they put it nine months into the course. Had they done that in the very beginning, I think everybody would have experienced trauma. But because it was nine months in where we've all developed um, so many skills as a facilitator, Mm -hmm. oh my God, it was the safest freaking container. And it was, it was just, I mean, seven days of, of the 37 years of my life, like some of the best seven days probably. And so, um, but I, I'm, I really, um, get that. Like, I know there's websites where you can go on and book a yoni massage from someone and, and, um, yeah, I, I just, I'd love to go into that with you and maybe what, what are some things that people can look for? in a course or in a practitioner or to watch out for, um, because most people who are cl- like drawn to sacred sex courses have had some form of sexual trauma. Really? So uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. been something huge for me is that I, I really want to stay away from re-traumatization. Um, mm-hmm. whether it, whether we're working with sexual energy or not, even if we're just going into a child an inner child healing, like really want to hold my clients and, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm constantly investing in trainings is I just want to be able to hold them uh, in their nervous system. But I'd love, yeah, I'd love to go into this specifically when it comes to sex Mm -hmm.
1: courses, what people can look for and look out for. Um, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is kind of um, a big, well, it's not big, but it's part of some of the survivor advocacy I do because, uh, so I started in the Tantra Taoism space to heal from abusive relationship, which also triggered a whole bunch of my childhood trauma mm-hmm. um, in, I guess it was like 2015.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, that's really where I started to see, I was already a trauma informed um, facilitator embodiment coach at that point. And I remember stepping into some of these communities being like, Oh dang.
2: Yeah. Like, what,
1: What, am I the only one seeing this? Like it was just, there was no informed consent. There was um, people having people experiencing seizures and having like really severe health and um emotional responses to this work and being told, just keep practicing. Not like you should probably stop and get a counselor or get some help. Yeah. Um, and so I know that's changed a lot in the last seven years. But you know, before the Instagram age, it was kind of a free for all. Um, we had like this whole trauma informed rubric and standard mm-hmm. it wasn't there, and a lot of people were um, a lot of people were getting hurt, and I think people still do. And so the thing that I tell people to look out for is informed consent Mm -hmm. i have or i used to when i had coaching on my website a health and wellness disclaimer do not start pleasure coaching or sex you know discovery work of any kind if you are currently in a high-risk situation if you're dealing if you're an active memory if you are struggling with um existing and persistent mental health issues Mm -hmm. and it's tricky because a lot of Times we look to sacred sexuality practices to relieve us of those complaints. Um, Again, everyone has their process and their journey. I really believe that I was drawn into this work so that I could have these deep and horrifying experiences, which took me two years to recover from, two years of chronic dysregulation as a result of what I experienced. Um, And I know I'm not the norm at all. Um, But it is a fact that people with severe. Um, developmental trauma and even folks on the neurodiversity spectrum are far more sensitive and so it's just I think it's a matter of practitioners being um, compassionate and attuned to that and making space for people to have different experiences and knowing that it is normal and maybe this isn't for them right now yeah I think that's informed consent and really someone who's who's I see a lot of selling people saying oh no this is fine. This is fine for you. You can do this. And it's like, well, maybe, but really check in with yourself and listen
2: mm-hmm.
1: to, to what really feels authentic. Um, you know, and I think part of the piece that we don't look at in terms of re-traumatization for courses of any kind, not just, you know, sacred sexuality courses, yeah, is that the group dynamic creates an environment where people will fawn and perform and try to, you know, go along with every, what everyone else is doing because this creates a kind of a groupthink mentality and there can be some guru worship, especially in some of these, you know, uh, depending if the if the facilitator is not attuned to that hierarchical dynamic that's created with one person at the top and everybody else, mm-hmm. right? So I really think looking for collaborative, um approaches people who really celebrate, you know, you are here you are having your own beautiful experience. We're here to support you, mm-hmm. but um you know, you will never be forced to do anything that you don't want to do. If something mm-hmm. doesn't feel right for you, stop doing it. Yeah. That's the especially for those of us who experienced abuse as children, we didn't have a choice. Yeah especially when we're in these courses, we don't have someone in front of us to say like, you don't have to do this,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? It's like, oh, if I don't have an orgasm every day, then I'm going to be bad at the course. Yeah. If I don't do these energy practices every day, then I'm not going to get the healing,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? And it activates those deep, 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 deep attachment wounds that like, if I don't do the right thing, I'm going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. If I don't go along with this, the bad thing's going to happen. Yeah. Right? It's, we have to be, it's one thing to be informed about trauma. And it's one thing to understand how the nervous system works and how we want to hold our clients. But we have to go that deeper step, do that deeper work to understand how the spaces we're creating are reenacting yeah. those, you know, deep, deep wounds that we experienced as kids. So... um you know, it just, and it takes, I've been kicked out of communities for trying to say, hey, I think we could, you know, maybe be a little bit more understanding of people who have different experiences, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. you're wrong. I'm saying people are having, you know, maybe it's only five or 10%. Mm-hmm. Those five or 10% of people deserve to be validated.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? And it doesn't make the 90% who've had exceptional mind opening, like heart bursting experiences any less valid.
2: Mm-hmm
1: right? It's just about trying to make spaces legitimately safe for everybody so that we can all heal.
0: Yeah, I know. In in my sessions with clients, I um, before asking them to do any sort of breath work or mm-hmm. any sort of t- like physical touch, whether it's just stroking their arm, whatever it is, um, I asked them like, check in with your body and see if it's a full yes. If it's mm-hmm. not a full yes, you can do this energetically. Um, but I was thinking about how at that retreat, um, you know, we would partner up with people but they would say check in with your body and if you're okay because there there would be times when they would touch our feet for grounding or touch our shoulder you know and mm-hmm. they they would say like if you're not okay with touch if you just want energy work you can come to this side and if you want touching go to that side and then you can pair up and just yeah that choice is so mm-hmm. important rather than just saying okay this is what you're going to do yeah. and it made me think about also how with the church, the church is not trauma informed. And so many people are going to the church with yeah. their trauma. And, and because the church and God is powerful, but because the church puts all the power in just prayer and scripture, people are going there with their trauma and being met with that. And it for me, it was extremely re traumatizing. And um, I thought about the example that, um, uh, a bit of what you said, because I went to a couple of camps where we'd show up to camp, teenagers, just teenagers, Mm -hmm. we'd show up to camp and they would do what they would call a deliverance, but it was an exorcism. They would have us line up in chairs and they would cast demons out of us and people would have seizures or they would throw up or they would be sobbing. And you would think, well, for sure, these are demons coming out of us because there's so much physical activity, right? Mm -hmm. But we were teenagers experiencing this in our own bodies and around us and then they would tell us after though that like you know we've now been cleansed so we're fixed now right so like that is re-traumatizing in itself because then we go back and when we experience depression like there's something wrong with us we did it wrong there's some sort of shame but they would also say like if you open up the door to lust in your life or to your eating disorder in your life. This demon not only comes back, but it brings seven friends. Uh And so it was so fear-based and Uh it was so freaking traumatizing, but it just makes me think about, and I know that's not the norm in churches at all, but it Uh makes me think about how um, the church is not trauma-informed and it's may not be doing things to that extent, but it is in a way um, handling trauma in ways that are, re-traumatizing in it. Um, yeah, it just it made
1: me think of that. And um yeah, it's you know what's funny? Um in that same chapter, uh it's all looking at kind of spirituality and and sex and fawning. And this is this is a point that I think a lot of people, I experienced it when I was kind of moving through my spiritual journey. Um, we to the divine. We put the divine up on a pedestal and we say, God is better than me. God is better than anything. I have to serve God. And we create, and even if you come out of the church and into a more kind of, you know, earth-based spirituality Mm -hmm. framework, if you don't dismantle that hierarchical relationship with spirit, Mm -hmm. then we're going to create relationships with spirituality that encourage fawning uh-huh. In ourselves, and we'll start to fawn to the divine, looking for um, approval outside of ourselves, instead of really coming home to the fact uh-huh. and the truth that um, spirit is inside of us, and that love yeah. has always been inside of us from day one, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess that makes me think of fawning as, like, in a way, a
0: a needing of salvation. You oh, know because like if we're fawning towards the divine in a way, it's like because we think we need salvation, we're unworthy because of our original sin or whatever mm-hmm. it is you know, and so we like fawn to gain the salvation. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense,
1: because I mean ultimately, I think we put one of the reasons we put um God or spirit source in that position of hierarchy is because we often have the same relationship with. Spirit as we do with our parents. Yes, right. Oh, yes. So um yes, we're looking for our parents to to save us. We're looking for them to pick us up and kiss our boo boos. Yeah, and,
0: and it us. makes sense. Yeah, we depended on them for life.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. I love and, that, you made that connection. It's such yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do have um a follow up question about something we talked about earlier that just came mm-hmm. to me. So you talked about the window of tolerance. Um, I'm curious. So you've you've also said that there's more safety on the other side of fear so how do we decipher mm-hmm. that window of tolerance in fear because i'm i am the type of person that like really pushes my edges while knowing my window of tolerance and um, but i like really push my edges and like i've done i don't know 40 plant medicine ceremonies like just to because i really do believe that there's more safety and pleasure in life on the other side of fear and mm-hmm. i i don't want to give into that fear but um, yeah, so anything you you, you want to say on that? Oh my gosh,
1: so much. <laughs> um so there's two things. Um one This is where the practice of titration comes in. So mm-hmm. it's not just about titrating um you know your pleasure or whatever might be difficult for us to access whether it's success or visibility a lot of survivors struggle with being seen so for folks who are trying to build a business right if if i can't be seen in the world by other people i'm gonna hide (laughs) my business and myself i'll Mm -hmm. struggle to you know get my message out so working on titration this this practice of slowly and steadily making ourselves ready Mm -hmm. to leap because taking that leap into that scary place is um sometimes it happens in a full blown you know full swell full swoop that's not the word what is it anyway i don't know <laughs> i think you know what i mean um and sometimes it happens in little baby steps
2: mm-hmm.
1: right um and i think that using titration in this way for you know if it's the fear of dating after an abusive relationship um, yeah. It's really this invitation to be gentle with ourselves, you know, and have that practice self-compassion. That's how I I, um, I see it. Because while, well, yes, there is more safety on the other side of fear, if I'm forcing myself to do something I don't want to do or I'm not ready to do, then I'm re-traumatizing myself. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, I think um i was very like you for pretty much all of my 30s and my early 40s i just turned 45 and um like just going for it with my healing and completely unrelenting um and part of that what i realized is that um now i can see looking back is that i had this deep belief that i was not going to be okay or lovable unless i was fully healed yeah so i had this urgency um about you know, I was a training junkie, workshop junkie. I just did it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one ever told me that I could take my time. No one ever said, you get to have your own process. You get to be gentle with your healing. And, you know, if you don't want to go for to therapy for a few months, you get to stop, mm-hmm. right? Whatever it is that um, this kind of holding on, tightly, I think makes it harder to take that leap from safety to fear, right? Because we can kind of get held in that place where like, Oh, I can't step out of my comfort zone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but knowing that we can do so gently. And that like, we can just dip a toe in and then come back out. There's mm-hmm. no like, I think we have and I feel like social media. A lot of people say I'm like anti social media, but I'm not I'm just like pro human. <laughs> <laughs> love and gentleness. Um, But I think that social media really gives us this um, image of life and healing as needing this like big catharsis and big moments and insights and realizations. But I find often it's sometimes the quietest, most subtle shifts that can make the biggest difference. And in order to experience those quiet, subtle shifts, we need to be quiet and subtle with ourselves. Yeah. That's, that's my little take on, on, more safety on the other side of fear. I don't know if it answers your question.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I love the titration piece because I had um, a client tell me like she could have orgasms, just not with her partner. And yeah. so, um, you know, the there was a, a tantric mentor, I guess, that the answer was, well, you need to... Uh, allow yourself to feel seen by your partner so do an erotic dance for him and I felt like, ooh, we're skipping a lot of steps, skipping all the safety because if she can't orgasm with her partner, there's a safety that needs to come and like skipping Mm -hmm. to an erotic dance and dance is so vulnerable for you yeah, but like not working on the safety piece and all the in between Mm
2: -hmm.
0: like that to me that could be a huge step in the other direction of, of less safety you know, nice. so yeah, I love that answer. And um, I, I agree. It's all um, everyone's process is so different too. So
1: mm. yeah, I think it's wonderful that you had that awareness when you were hearing that um, advice from your mentor that that's evidence of someone who is actually living trauma informed care and sees that um, big leaps can sometimes lead to big falls. Yeah. If there's no safety piece, especially.
0: Yeah. So I love that that's such a big part of your work. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's a few short questions that I like to ask everyone who comes on the show. Sure. The first one is if you could hug your younger self right now, what would you say?
1: If I could hug my younger self, uh-huh. what would I say? Uh-huh. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did it.
2: Yeah, I love that. If you could have the
0: whole world read one book, which would it be? Oh, my gosh. That's a hard one.
1: Oh, it's such a hard one. Well, mine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um, Besides that, um, do you know what book I really love that is just so playful and juicy is um, Jitterbug Perfume? Oh, I've never heard of it. Oh. It's like, I think it was written in 1983 or 84. It's, um oh my gosh, his name is going to escape me right now. I love that name. I know, That's it's amazing. amazing. It's He's just this really, he's kind of a little bit like Vonnegut. Um, very um, beautiful, quirky writing, but it's so immersive. I just, I re, I pick that book up every couple of years and reread it because it's just wow. like soul food. It's, yeah. a, it's a really fun read.
2: Amazing. Rob Robbins. Tom Robbins.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah. Okay, if you could whisper one phrase to everyone on the planet, what would it be?
2: Do not squander your life.
1: I love that. Yeah. And I, I have to say I can't take responsibility for that. That's uh that's the last line of a blessing that an old Buddhism teacher used to use at the end of all of the sanghas Um, I actually say it every morning when I wake up. Do you mind if I it's just a few lines? Oh it's, yeah, of course. I'd love it. Um, life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly, and opportunities are lost. Let us awaken, awaken! Do not squander your life. I love that. All like all of us, like hundred, hundred fifty people whispering that at the same time. It just oh, it was beautiful. Uh,
2: yeah, oh, I
1: love that.
0: Okay, before I let you go, where can people find you online find your book?
1: Mm. I know you said you're not coaching, but if there's other ways they can work with you. Totally. Um, so my website, NishaHeronFair.com. My Instagram is uh, at fair, And folks can reach me through my, my email or send messages that way. Um, I'm not currently coaching. Uh, I am working on developing courses for practitioners and coaches um, to... Yeah incorporate more trauma informed approaches into into their work. So that's coming. Um, but I've just taken this time to to focus on that entirely. Um, I do I do speaking engagements for folks in Canada who are local. Um, awesome. And yeah, that's it for now and the book the I'm sure that we'll put the the link in the in the show notes
2: yeah
0: amazing thank you so much you. Awesome. this is wonderful
1: you look like 10 years yeah. younger than the age that you said so it must be all that pleasure <laughs> well yeah it's that too and um I don't drink or smoke or yeah. you know I've been dance has been an enormous part of my life from yeah. when I was really young and I really believe that you know that that movement, it uh feeds vitality. So, but thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you so much for the work that you're doing because it oh, just thank you. It, there's so
0: many people now working in the sexual healing side mm-hmm. of things. But um yours specifically feels very, very grounded. And um I'm the fact much. that it's trauma informed, I mean, like, uh, you know, yeah. like it's really, really, really what people are needing when it comes to their. Their authentic sexuality and their sexual yeah. trauma, and 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 just in all areas, you know, it's that that level of safety. So I really, really appreciate the work that you've done on yourself, and and that you're offering out. And I'm yeah. so excited that you've put your book out there. And yeah, thank you,
1: thank you, thank I you. Really appreciate it. So thank you. I checked out your obviously all your work, and I think that just hearing hearing your dedication to what you're doing is so. Um, it reaffirms my faith Aww. in this work and the potential for it because there are so many people who will take a month long course. Yeah. And not, and those are, that's where people are getting hurt, you know, yeah. because they haven't done that deep work. And so I just appreciate places like yours that are, um, and I appreciate you amplifying this message because it is an important one to, to get that's out important. there. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And I I feel that, I mean,
0: cause there's people who take one cup of ayahuasca and then they want to start serving it, you know? And I, <laughs> I feel that uh, probably at the heart of it, they want to do good, oh, you know, but there's still some really ego.
2: Obviously,
0: the egos getting in the way. Um, and there's the ungroundedness of not knowing how much needs to happen first. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that 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 awareness also becomes kind of more at the forefront of of how important it is that people really, really get trained and and um, know how important, what an honor, but what how, how important it is as a facilitator to really be able to hold the nervous system and not just be able to regurgitate, so.
1: Big time, and then take yourself out of it because a lot of people, like I find this with, even when I'm looking for like, you know, an osteopath or something, I always sit down and have a conversation with them, and I even find in that case that they're not actually able to listen to me. Mm. You know, people who've been practitioners for a long time aren't actually listened to; the, they can't it's listen to the like, "no," right? It's like, oh no, I'm the practitioner, and this is what I'm doing, and being able to. There's a woman and I can't remember her name, but she's done a lot of work in hearing the "no" behind the "yes." oh right and like that there is an energetic no if you're willing to listen to it and respond to it and say yeah. like it's not about me mm-hmm. right um and so i love you know your approach of just holding space for people it's so needed and that's really like you know most of my clients Like i feel like often that's just what they need is someone to like love them and embrace yeah. them you yeah, know after yeah. how long of not having that so it's just it's such an unrecognized under-recognized Mm-hmm. part of the the puzzle so anyway yeah I mean it really comes down to presence so many of
0: us have oh, no. not experienced presence in another and oh, no. um, until we're able to really hold that presence with ourselves we also you know it's it's not something we can necessarily embody for another so there's like so much of that inner work as well that's such a huge piece of it but yeah, yeah. i know that's a whole nother podcast interview <laughs> we
2: can talk forever i know anyway,
1: it was lovely much. to connect with you yeah. and meet you and um if you ever want to do another show again or if there's any way i can help to uh connect or or promote your work just let me know thank and i'll to so. yeah thank you so much you're welcome.
0: All right, you guys, ah, um, I'm extremely, extremely thankful for her. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I haven't read the whole book. But what I've read is just amazing. Even though I feel like I'm no longer in a fun uh, place in my life. Still, the book has been really, really amazing. So um, I hope you'll check it out. And and uh, I hope that this episode brought some light to any sort of stress response in your life, and and um, yeah, I, I'd like to invite you into more pleasure today. Um, however, that looks for you, whether that's eating some chocolate or a nice juicy peach, or um, just laying down and giving yourself a scalp massage, whatever that is, and seeing what comes up, seeing what comes up for your nervous system, and um how worthy you feel of that and just just sitting with that answer from your body all right I'll thank the affiliates the gene keys I love the gene keys y'all find out your um, find out your gene key uh, you can find it out for free on genekeys.com um, and It's just a wonderful path of self-discovery. But if you use my link to purchase any of the courses, I will get a little cut. And uh, I'd also love to just hear from you if you take the courses. And um, I'm currently in the dream arc about how to use your dreams as messengers. And I highly uh, recommend that one. I also highly, he's got the Venus for love, the pearl for prosperity. He's got so many things on there. My link is in the show notes. It's also in my Instagram bio, but I'll say it here GeneKeys.com, G E N E, GeneKeys.com forward slash the dash dream dash arc, A R C forward slash R E F forward slash 1707. And then the best toys for sex at dameproducts.com. Code Jade gets you 15% off. A suction toy with powerful arousal tools. It goes around the clitoris and creates thrilling pulses of air. It is my favorite thing to do, th- the thing to use um, during sex. Uh, it's also, you can use it with your partner, like right after heat orgasms, you can put it on his balls and that can feel really pleasurable for him. You know, that's been the feedback I've received. So, um... There's multiple ways you can use that. Code Jade gets you 15% off. I also like to pair it with my pleasure wand or my yoni egg. I also love my pleasure wands and yoni eggs on their own, um, just for de-armoring and toning of the vaginal muscles. But um, you can pair them or use them on your own, whichever one uh, or both. (laughs) But use uh, code Jade for a discount there as well wands.com w a a n d s.com and then all things infrared at higher dose code jade 75 gets you 75 dollars off i'm gonna jump in my infrared sauna right after i get off here it's a sauna blanket it's amazing you feel really cleansed and detox. plus the benefits of infrared are just endless okay thank you so much guys for being on this journey with me and tuning into this episode it would mean so much if you would leave a review or share an episode with a friend you can also join me on instagram at untamed and unashamed podcast as always be a light stay open and remember you belong here